Let's welcome Pastor Rick McGue. Thank you, Pastor Paul. Thank you so much, Pastor Paul, and God bless you all. It's good to see you. Uh, how many of you were here Sunday? All right, most all of you. Good, good. Um, you can actually go onto our website, and it tells you that in the book, localchurchapologetics.org, and you can download the memorization cards so that, like tonight, we're going to talk about six scientific flaws of the theory of evolution. Well, uh, there's six memorization cards to memorize those six points so that it's not just something you say, well, you know, I know I heard something like that uh, at one point, but you can actually memorize the six major points. You don't have to memorize the whole lesson, but just the six points, and then you can use those in uh, future conversations and in your life in various ways. And then, as Pastor Paul mentioned, uh, there'll be notes for you on the way out as well. Well, we're going to, in these next six weeks, we're going to be talking, uh, obviously, a lot about uh, creation and evolution, and we're going to talk about how we know the Bible is the Word of God. We're going to talk about how we know Jesus Christ is a historical person, that he truly rose from the dead, bodily rose from the dead, and that uh, he is God, he is the Messiah. We're going to talk uh, then also toward the end a little bit about some of those questions that uh, skeptics throw out, sometimes sincerely, sometimes just to try to trip you up. You know, like if God's a loving God, why is there so much suffering in the world? Uh, how can a loving God send people to hell? You know, how can you say that Jesus is the only way? So we'll cover some of those kinds of, of questions as well in these weeks that we spend together. Um, so I just want to encourage you to let this be a time that you prayerfully learn and, and, and let God then use you as an instrument in this culture. You know, I'm, I'm speaking this coming Saturday to an event for children, elementary children, that's put on by Royal Rangers and uh, Girls Club in the state of Illinois. And then I'm speaking the 1st of November to Momentum, to the, um, our state teen um, convention, so I, I always look forward to those opportunities to speak to young people about these issues because they're in the midst of the battle. But I always like to, to challenge older folks that are more in our age group because um, we, we sometimes can approach this and say, well, you know, I know it's needed. I know my kids need it. I know my grandkids need it. I know young people need it, but I'm not going back to college and I'm not going to certainly not going to go back to high school, and nobody's going to really challenge me about my faith too much. And so, I don't know, do I really need this kind of stuff? Well, here's, here's my challenge that I give to folks in, in, in our age group, uh, and some of you are a lot younger than I am, but, uh, but we're all probably beyond that, uh, as most of us at least those college years. Here's my challenge is, we, you know, Jesus didn't call any of us to just have faith so we can go to heaven, and that's it, did he? We all have a calling on our life to be his witnesses and to help other people go to heaven. And boy, that's especially true of our own family. And I would venture to say almost everybody in this room at some point, due to the culture we live in, 
is going to have a child, a grandchild, a niece, a nephew, a neighbor. Somebody's going to come up to you and have a question or express to you, they're not sure if they even believe that stuff anymore. Or, what do I do with this question or that question? And it, it's, it's really important, and that's what this first lesson will start with, is the importance of why we need to learn these things. So I just want to challenge you to think about learning not just for yourself, because if you only think of learning for yourself, it'll be easy for you in six weeks period of time to at some point maybe kind of shut down and just say, you know, I'm think I've got enough here because I don't really plan to walk away from my faith. But if you approach these weeks as an opportunity for God to equip you so that you can, you may be the instrument that saves somebody else from walking away from their faith as they're being challenged by the culture. The more that believers begin to be equipped to defend their faith, the more, the better we'll do in regard to those kinds of things. And Brother Brendan, I'm, I've got this turned on and it's not working. There we go, now it's working. This is the verse where we get the word apologetics. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you yet with gentleness and reverence, 1 Peter 3.15. Now, the, that phrase, always being ready to make a defense, really the, the phrase to make a defense, comes from the Greek word apologia, and that's where we get the word apologetics. So when we say apologetics, we're not talking about apologizing for our faith. We're actually, it's really kind of the opposite. It's making a defense. But I want you to notice there's, there's a command in Scripture for you and I to be ready to have prepared ourselves when people ask us, why do you believe that stuff? And so that's what apologetics is really all about. It's why we need apologetics. It, it deals with not just what we believe, but why we believe what we believe. It deals with reasoning as opposed to simply proclaiming. And Christians are oftentimes accused of having blind faith, which is just not true, but apologetics really it gets involved with that, of, of helping us to express to people why it's not blind faith uh, and show them that our faith does not conflict with reality. It's actually confirmed by reality. So why do we need apologetics in America today where our culture is now humanistic, skeptical, non-Judeo-Christian in, in, in its foundational worldview? And it's a post-Christian culture. So the culture is so much different. It changes. I, I say a lot of times to people, the gospel has not changed. Jesus Christ died on the cross. He rose from the dead three days later. And he ascended into heaven. And in doing so, he made a way for us to be saved through faith in him. Our sins can be forgiven. We can have eternal life. The gospel message has not changed at all. But the starting point in sharing the gospel has changed in America because people don't have the same Judeo-Christian foundation that they once did. Newsweek magazine in 2009 spoke of the decline and fall of Christianity, of Christian America. And books like this already gone, a number of them have been written that talk about 
And the reason this is called already gone is talking about that in our churches, many of the young people, the children that are there, they're already gone. They just, they're there because their parents, they come with their parents, but they've already made a decision that as soon as they're of age where they can make their own choice, they're going to be out of there. And it's, it's scary to think that they're experiencing so many things. Not all of it is intellectual challenges and you know, skepticism. Some of it's just moral stuff that's going on in the culture. But there's so much buying to, or working together to attack their faith. So we need to understand the need for faith and reason together. Ravi Zacharias says that what I believe in my heart must make sense with my mind. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your, your mind. And so we need to be people that, that think through and uh, can express to people why we believe these things to be true. When we think of the need for reason, I want to take you to Acts chapter 17, verse 1 through 3. We notice, notice what Paul did here. It says, now when they had traveled through Amphibolus and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus who I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. Now notice he, he is, at, at verse 3 it says he was proclaiming Christ to them. But it also says in this passage, he reasoned with them and he gave them evidence that confirmed what he was proclaiming. Later in this same chapter, interestingly enough, we see this, this idea of a different starting point because he moves from Thessalonica, he's now in Athens, and there's all kinds of heathen uh, uh, idolatry there. These people don't have the same kind of background that the people in the synagogue that he was reasoning with did at the beginning of the chapter. Notice what he does here. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. He starts with this group of people where they're at, and he says, the God you call the unknown God, I want to proclaim him to you, he's the God who made the world. He starts with creation. You see, this is really more the type of culture we're in now. We're not in a synagogue culture that already knows the Old Testament and has a foundation, and we have to just explain to them, well, the Old Testament that you've been reading and studying and believing in, Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah you were looking for. No, we live in a culture that's more like this, where people are questioning, is there a creator? Is there a God? Matter of fact, they're being taught that there isn't one, or at least he didn't create them. And so we need to, the starting point is different. When we think of what reason really means, it means the faculty of the mind by which it distinguishes truth from falsehood and good from evil and which enables the possessor to deduce inferences from facts or from propositions. It's related to logic. Reason is a wonderful thing. But there are many in our culture that would say to you, 
will say to our kids and our grandkids, you've got to choose whether you're going to be a person of reason or a person of faith because they don't go together at all. That if you're going to be a person who lives by faith, then you have to leave reason behind. You can't be a person who really uses logic and looks at evidence. But let's look at what faith really means. It means uh, faith is in general the persuasion of the mind that a certain statement is true. Its primary idea is trust. A thing is true and therefore worthy of trust. It admits of many degrees up to full assurance of faith in accordance with what? The evidence on which it rests. So faith rests on evidence. It is not blind faith that the Christian walks in. As a matter of fact, it's based on evidence. And here's another meaning for uh, faith based out of the Webster's Dictionary. Belief, the assent of the mind to the truth of what is declared by another, resting on his authority and veracity. Now that word veracity is interesting. Kind of speaks of a proven track record. And I like this picture to illustrate this meaning of faith that because the, the son here, the little boy, he's never done this before. He has no empirical evidence to know it's going to be okay to jump. But he does have dad who has veracity because every time throughout his life he's learned when dad tells me it's going to be okay, it's always okay. And so he jumps based on not his empirical evidence but on the veracity of the one who's telling him uh, to jump. Faith and reason are both related to and based on evidence, and so they're companions. They are not opposition. Now, it, it, you may be saying, well, why are you talking about this? And because there are many college professors today that are telling our young people faith and reason are not companions, and we need to see that. When, and they give false definitions of faith. One guy defines faith as belief without evidence. And then he goes on to say, well, it's actually pretending to know something you don't know. And so based on his definition of faith, he challenges his students to walk away from faith and to walk into reason. Even Jonathan Edwards, back uh, over 200 years ago, who was the, the kind of the key voice in the first great awakening in America, and he's known for uh, the sermon, Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God. But what most people don't know is he was also into apologetics. And he made this statement, all truth is given by revelation, either general or special, and it must be received by reason. Reason is the God-given means for discovering the truth that God discloses, whether in his world or in his word. While God wants to reach the heart with truth, he does not bypass the mind. One of the burdens of my heart is to see the body of Christ in this hour recognize we can be people of revival, people of spiritual awakening, people with fervor and passion, people of the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit, and yet also, and this is Jonathan Edwards is a great example of this, people of reason who see the value in putting these things together. By the way, did you know Abraham Lincoln came to know Christ through meeting a preacher who was into apologetics. He was really turned off, Abraham Lincoln was, by some of the stuff he had experienced early in life related to Christianity and just didn't believe that stuff. And then he met a, a, a preacher who's taught Christianity 
with, with reason and rational thinking, and he became a believer, and God obviously used him in great ways in this country. Now, today, tonight, we're going to look at, and this, again, is another form of the introduction here of just kind of seeing in general how do uh, creation and science fit together, and, and then we'll move into the differences between creation and evolution. Which one's true? creation or evolution. Our, our, and we start that by talking about this, our science and the Bible against each other. You have guys like this, Matan Shalomi, who's a bi, uh, biologist, and he says this, so you can study biology without accepting evolution, but if one day you try to insert your religious beliefs into science, it won't fit, and your reputation among biologists will go down the toilet where I'd have to say it will belong. Evolution, after all, is a fact. You may be able to do the process of science without accepting it, but you won't be able to discover or create anything or push the field forward because you don't actually understand it. Another analogy would be like studying cooking without believing in flavors. You can follow the recipes but you cannot create new ones, so even if you get a job at a kitchen, you are not a true chef. You will be able to do biological research, but you won't understand biology. You won't really be a biologist, even if your diploma says, so, says you are. So that's the kind of statement. That's all over America. Our young people hear stuff like this all the time. So you can't be a scientist if you don't believe in evolution that it just won't fit. Well, I've only got one slide to dispute this. This is Dr. John C. Sam. Now, I could give you more, but we don't have time to do all that, so I just use this one. Dr. John C. Sanford, an American plant geneticist. He's an advocate of intelligent design and a young earth creationist. He doesn't believe in evolution, but here's what he's done. 1980 to 1998, an assistant and associate professor of horticulture sciences at Cornell University, honorary adjunct associate professor of botany at Duke University. He has published over 70 scientific publications. He's an inventor with more than 32 issued patents. While he was at Cornell, he and his colleagues developed the biolistic particle delivery system, or called the Gene Gun. He's founded two biotechnology companies, does that sound like a guy that, because he doesn't believe in evolution, you just can't move the field forward, you can't really do science? You see, it's just propaganda. It's what's being promoted in America. Here's another example of what is really true about this debate. This is from a website called uh, 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 the, um, a Scientific uh, Descent from Darwinism. And here's what the statement is. We are skeptical of the claims of the ability of random mutations and natural selection to account for the complexity of life. Careful examine, examination of the evidence of, for Darwinian theory should be encouraged. This, you can go, uh, the Discovery Institute is what I was trying to think of. That's where this comes from. You can go online, you can download a list of 900, over 900 scientists at major universities, uh, you know, Almost all of them have doctorates, and they've all signed this. So this is just the ones willing to sign it. And some of them take great ridicule by acknowledging that they don't think that Darwinian evolution is a slam dunk. 
but they have real questions about the validity of it. What is science? Well, it is knowledge that is systematized, it's, and true science is both observable, demonstrable, and repeatable. So one, science is a wonderful thing, but there's a big difference between science dealing with things you can observe, you can demonstrate and repeat the experiments, and historical sciences uh, that deal with a whole different aspect of things. So there's obser observational science or operational science, and people that believe in evolution and people that don't believe in evolution work hand in hand many times developing things like the gene gun and uh, uh, advancing technology. But it's historical science is where the major difference comes. That's where you're looking at something today, like bones, and you're making assumptions about the past, things you can't see, you can't demonstrate it, you can't observe it, you can't repeat it. That's where evolution and creation come into play, and we interpret evidence. And those in our culture that believe in evolution now oftentimes, they're very loud and they're very persistent, basically saying, like we already read an example of, that we've got this, it's a settled issue. Nobody who really believes in science disagrees. So you're stupid if you don't believe it. That's basically what's being said. But that's just propaganda. And I've tried to show you just a couple examples of how that is not true. Now, another thing we need to understand in this whole debate is the term naturalism. Naturalism is a system of which the salient characteristics is the exclusion of whatever is spiritual or supernatural. Why is that important? Most science classrooms today in America are based on naturalism. So that means before you ever start studying, you've already ruled out the supernatural. It's not allowed in the class. It's not allowed as a possibility of an answer for what you're examining. The only answers that can be given are in the natural realm. Materialism or naturalism, it's called. I like to use this little cartoon to illustrate naturalism. These two little fish, one says, no, it's perfectly obvious that nothing exists outside this bowl. Just think of it. Have you ever experienced anything else? And we look at that, we say, well, that looks kind of silly, but it's kind of silly for us living here on the earth to assume that there is nothing other than what we can observe and what we've experienced, that because you can't see God, he doesn't exist. I like to illustrate naturalism this way, too. If we turn this into a math class tonight, and I said to you, for the rest of the night, here's our question we're going to deal with. What is two plus two? Now, most of you would be thinking already, well, that's, there's, there's no class to this. That's so easy. And I would tell you, we're going to get into groups. We're going to discuss our best answers and, and, and philosophies and examine what is two plus two. But there's one rule. Four is not allowed in the discussion. So we've already ruled out four. Now let's talk about what is two plus two. You see, that's what's done in the science classrooms today. God is ruled out, the supernatural and the spiritual realm is ruled out before the class ever starts, and then we look at things and try to explain life and give explanations for it. And so that based on that 
those rules, evolution seems to be the best fit because there's nothing else that seems to make any sense, although I'll show you a couple things tonight of where sometimes that goes. Dr. Richard Lewinton from Harvard University admits what I'm telling you about right now. He says this, our willingness to accept scientific claims that are against common sense is the key to an understanding of the real struggle between science and the supernatural. We take the side of science in spite of the patent absurdity of some of its constructs, in spite of its failure to fulfill many of its extravagant promises of health and life, in spite of the tolerance of the scientific community for unsubstantiated just-so stories, because we have a prior commitment, a commitment to materialism. It is not that the methods and institutions of science somehow compel us to accept a material explanation of the phenomenal world, but on the contrary, that we are forced by our priori adherence to material causes to create an apparatus of investigation and a set of concepts that produce material explanations, no matter how counterintuitive, no matter how mystifying to the uninitiated. Moreover, that materialism is absolute, for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. Now, there's an admission, and I appreciate him being real about that, of what's happening in science classrooms in many places across America. We cannot allow a divine foot in the door, and so no matter how absurd the answers seem to be, we have a commitment to a materialistic or naturalistic answer before we ever study the problem. Okay, so that's kind of foundational. I want to now talk about these six scientific flaws of the theory of evolution. Next week, we get into what I consider to be the better stuff, and that's we get to look at what God has done and look at eight levels of evidence of a creator and things that we can see that confirm that we are created for everything from the universe down to the human cell. But we also need to look at it, it, when you have people all through your culture proclaiming evolution is a proven fact, basically. They use the word theory, but then some of them will say it's as proven as the law of gravity is. When you have that kind of thing, we need to look and have some idea of what, what would you say to somebody who says evolution is a sure thing? Well, I'm going to give you six scientific problems with the theory of evolution. Number one, it violates the second law of thermodynamics. What is that? Well, that, that basically says that the amount of usable energy in any closed system always decreases. In other words, things move from order to chaos, not from chaos to order. It's, it's also called entropy. We see it everywhere. Just look at your body. <laughs> I'm gonna be 60 next week. And my body is not nothing like it was when I was 20. And we see it, you know, in the, in the universe, stars are burning out. We see it all around us. If you take a brand new car, you set it in your driveway, and you say, you know, it's pretty nice now, it's brand new, but if I leave it set there for 20 years, maybe it'll get better. It's not going to work, is it? We see entropy Things moving from order to chaos, that's the law of second, uh, uh, second law of thermodynamics. The scientific law is seen all around us. But what does evolution say? 
Evolution says that 13.8 billion years ago, it was completely chaos. There was just an explosion. And there's a lot of things we could talk about that, where the matter and energy come from that exploded. But they say this tiny dot of, of matter and energy, of everything that is now the universe, exploded. And now, since that explosion, we went from complete chaos to a universe that is so ordered that you can identify laws of physics, and if you move them just slightly, nothing would work. It's perfect. It's completely ordered. So how do you move from complete chaos to complete order and say that's scientific when there's a scientific law that says things move from order to chaos, they don't move from chaos to order. And I heard one debate on this and the, the evolutionary speaker said, well, that doesn't apply to the earth because it's not a closed system. It gets energy from the sun, from an outside source. But this is not just about the earth. This is the entire universe that this law applies to, which is a closed system. Number two, the theory of evolution violates the law of biogenesis. Again, that's a scientific law. Life only comes from life. It's contrary to spontaneous generation, or it's also called abiogenesis. So, what does evolution say? Here on Earth, about 3.5 billion years ago, there was no living cells, and out of non-living matter, life arose, and it became us over a period of time. But this scientific law says life never comes from non-life. Dr. Francis Crick, who was uh, a brilliant scientist, he and Dr. James Watson discovered DNA, or the DNA double helix structure back in the 1950s and won a Nobel Prize for it in 1962. He's a brilliant man. When he discovered DNA and started looking at how complex life was at just what we would call, you know, Darwin thought that a living cell would be just like some protoplasma jelly-like stuff, really simple, nothing complex to it. Well, once Dr. Crick and others began to see how complex it was, he said, he said to, to create the DNA molecule randomly would be less likely than creating a, a 747 jumbo jet by running a hurricane through a metal factory. He also wrote a book with his findings saying there's no way that life developed from non-life here on the earth, even if you give it billions of years, it's just too complex, it could not have happened. And he wrote a book, I've got that book in my library, Life Itself, Its Origin and Nature. So we would think, aha, Dr. Crick became a believer. Did he accept Jesus? Did he acknowledge God as creator? No, he didn't. He came up with a theory. It's called directed panspermia. Well, what is that? It says here, given the weaknesses of all theories of terrestrial genesis, directed panspermia, the deliberate planting of life on earth by aliens, 
should still be considered a serious possibility. You say, well, does anybody else believe that other than him? Richard Dawkins, the most outspoken atheist probably in the world, acknowledges directed panspermia as a valid explanation of how life came to be here on the earth. So, they would say, we can believe that aliens we've never seen did it, but we could never accept that God, who we've never seen, did it. Now, I want to show you a little video clip about this uh, directed panspermia. In 2006, genetic researchers at the University of California at Santa Cruz discovered an area of the genome they called HAR1 that appears to be unique to humans. Scientists believe the HAR1 gene plays a critical role in the advanced development of the human brain and is a key element that sets us apart from other animals. But where did it come from? Did humans develop this distinct gene naturally through evolution? Or did it land here from another planet? Francis Crick, the British scientist who helped discover the structure of DNA, believed that human genes could not have evolved by chance. Crick didn't feel in that period of roughly 600 million years from the formation of the planet down to the time when the planet could first support life. There was enough time for DNA to evolve by accident. It's an enormously complicated molecule. Crick gave this analogy. You would be more likely to assemble a fully functioning and flying jumbo jet by passing a hurricane through a junkyard than you would be to assemble the DNA molecule by chance in any kind of primeval soup in five or six hundred million years. It's just not possible. But if this molecule could not have evolved accidentally, how was it created? Was it, as some believe, put there on purpose? The question should not be, do the extraterrestrials look like us, or what do the extraterrestrials look like, but do we look like the extraterrestrials? Because according to the ancient astronaut theory, a long, long time ago, extraterrestrials came here and through a targeted mutation of our genes, we quote-unquote became human. So there you go. So even some evolutionists eliminate the possibility that life evolved from non-life. They admit it's, it just could not have happened. It's too complicated. And next week, when we start digging into the evidence of a creator and we start looking, and Sunday, if you were here, I talked a little bit about some of these things, the complexities of life. You know, think of Dr. Lioness Pauling says, one human cell is more complex and by the way, he's considered one of the 20 greatest scientists of all times. One human cell is more complex than the entire city of New York. So you see, the more you begin to look at these things, the more it's ridiculous to think that life came from a rock and it just spontaneously developed here on earth by itself. So some say, well, maybe aliens did it. You see, when you don't want to give God credit, you can go to great lengths to try to avoid the obvious that there's an intelligent, wise, and powerful God 
who created life here on the earth. So I want to show you one more thing about this. This is from the high school textbook they use in Moline. And see, how, how do they deal with this? Because in the textbooks, they don't usually teach directed panspermia. They're still teaching life came from non-life. And they do in this textbook. Well, first of all, I want to show you on page 272, they're talking about explanation of all the rock layers and the fossils. And, and they say in that, some people say maybe a global flood, like the Bible says, did it. And here's their explanation about that. Charles Lyell also argued that scientists must always explain past events in terms of events and processes they could observe themselves. That, Lyell insisted, was the only way the scientific method could work. So we can't accept the flood, they said, because we don't see it happening. It's got to be an explanation of something we can see happening. So, 75 pages later, in a chapter that's dealing with, they've taught about Spontaneous generations showed that uh, Louis Pasteur and others proved that wasn't right, that there's a scientific law that life can only come from life. And at the end of that chapter, they give an explanation. How do you mesh that with the idea that we talked about in this textbook that life came from non-life here on the earth billions of years ago? Here's the explanation. This is a quote. This is what the book says to end the chapter. Hey, what's going on? you might exclaim. If we just said that life did arise from non-life billions of years ago, why couldn't it happen again? So, you know, we could, why don't we observe it happening now? The answer is simple. Today's Earth is a very different planet from the one that existed billions of years ago. So just accept it. Just believe what we're telling you. It can't happen now, and you'll never observe it but we're telling you it's science because it's in the science book to believe it did happen billions of years ago. You see, that's what's happening to our young people. And because it's in a textbook and because it's taught by teachers that we pay to teach our young people, the young person's mind is saying, it must be true. It's in my textbook and it's in my teachers telling me this. But when you begin to examine it, you realize that is not scientific. Just trust us, it happened billions of years ago. You can't observe it, you'll never see it happen again, but things were different back then. Well, what about number three? And this one, I believe, may be the one that I think parents and grandparents need to understand better than any of the rest of them. Because it's so easy to show your children the truth of this. The theory of evolution purposely confuses microevolution with macroevolution. Microevolution is just adaptation within a kind. We breed dogs, we can get different kinds of dogs. My mom and dad out in their front yard have a tree. My, uh, they planted some maple trees 25, 30 years ago. And they got a tree out in the front yard that half of it's a crimson king with red leaves and half of it's a regular maple with green leaves. There is room for adaptation within kinds. Things can change. Finches, their beaks can change. Does that sound familiar? 
That's, that's a reality. That's scientific. You can observe it. You can prove it over and over again. Macroevolution is one kind turning into another. That's never been observed scientifically in the laboratory or in life. There are no examples of it. Now, there are examples people speculate from a fossil, well, maybe this turned into this. But the more you dig into that, of the huge leaps in logic that they take, you realize there, there aren't any examples of macroevolution. So what do they do with our kids in the textbook? They show them Darwin's finches, and they show them other examples of microevolution, which we believe in as believers. We believe God put within the DNA of living things wiggle room. That's real. But then they say to them, see there, evolution's true. It's real. And because this, you see this example here, that means a bacteria could turn into a man. And that's a whole different ballgame. Dr. Dean Kenyon is the author of the textbook that was used about chemical evolution for years. He was a leader in the evolutionary thought process on this. And then he, the more he saw of living things, the more he walked away from that. And he says this, and let us dispose of a common misconception, the complete transmutation of even one animal species into a different species has never been directly observed, either in the laboratory or in the field. Now let's watch this. I'm going to show you a clip now from this movie that deals with this issue where Ray Comfort is asking college professors to show an example that you can observe of evolution, as well as science students. Faith in the experts knowing what they're talking about. The scientific method is, must be observable and repeatable. So could you give me one piece of observable evidence for Darwinian evolution? Okay, I would point to, as one great example is, look at the genetics of the stickleback. What's that? Uh, so stickleback fish are a very interesting collection of species that were recently isolated after the end of the Ice Age. What did they become? They're, they're various species of sticklebacks. They stayed as fish? Well, of course. Can you think of any observable evidence where there was a change of kinds? Fish. Human beings are still fish. Human beings are fish? Why, yes, of course they are. How long did that take? A couple of billions of years, millions. A couple of millions? How is that observable? It's not. We came out of the ground as a mammal, and one mammal created... Come out of the ground? Didn't we come out of the sea? Huh? Well, initially in the beginning, we came out of the ground and the sea after the great destruction of the... the... So do we have lungs or gills when we came out of the sea? You want to know something? Those that were in the sea, I guess, had gills, and those that were on land had lungs. But if we came out of the sea, we had gills in the sea. You want to know something? Who knows that we came out of the sea or we came out, we evolved from mammals? So you don't know? Huh? Of course I don't know. I'm accepting that they did their science correctly. Could you give me an example of Darwinian evolution, not adaptation or speciation, but a change of kinds? <laughs> These are changes of kinds. They're still fish. They're distinctly different fish. We have thousands of examples. Give me, can you give me one? I can give you, I can give you thousands, just one. For instance, I would say, uh, look at Lenski's experiments with bacteria then. So what do the bacteria become? The bacteria are still bacteria, of course. So that's not Darwinian evolution. That's not a change of kinds, is it? It, it is a change, it is a change in the genetic makeup of the bacteria, which but is still bacteria. So what do the bacteria become? Uh, a new kind of bacteria. It's still bacteria, there's no change of kinds. To summarize, the observable evidence that you give me for Darwinian evolution is bacteria 
becoming bacteria. No, it is bacteria acquiring new metabolic capability. These are college professors who teach evolution. Seems like a pretty simple question, doesn't it? One example of one, a kind turning into another that we can observe. Fish turning into fish, bacteria turning into bacteria. That's all microevolution. Did they change? Yeah, they changed. The, the bacteria became uh, uh, immune to certain types of antibiotics. That's real, but they're still bacteria. Did Darwin see finch beaks change? Yeah, he did. Matter of fact, when the environment changed back, they uh, went back to the way they were before. They adapted. But he never saw a finch become anything other than a finch. Tortoises that became tortoises. That's microevolution. But this is what, so these are the types of things our kids see in their textbooks. And you can begin to point that out to them. You can have this kind of discussion with them. When they begin to be confused, and they're going to see pictures of Darwin's finches. They're going to see pictures of peppered moths, light ones and dark ones, maybe stickleback fish, and probably bacteria. And they're going to be being taught, see kids, these are examples. You can observe evolution occurring. There's a whole website on those fish. And in that website, it says, you know, there's a misconception that we can't see evolution occurring. And then they, the whole website, that is the example of saying, see there, science is showing you can observe evolution right now happening. But you as a parent or grandparent can now go to the textbook and open it up, point to the pictures and say, I want you to see something. The reason they're only giving you examples of microevolution, adaptation, is because they don't have any examples of macroevolution. It's never been observed. It's assumed. They're taking a leap in logic that if a bacteria can become immune to uh, antibiotic, if, if a saltwater fish can develop tendencies to live in freshwater, if a finch beak can change based on its environment, well then, an ape can become a man. A dinosaur can become a bird. And those are whole different things, and we need to understand that and be able to help people see the differences. Uh, this is one more video clip. Random variation, natural selection. This, Dr. Belinsky, or, or um, David. Random variation, natural selection. We should be able to stop manipulating organisms. When we look at dogs, no matter how far back we go, it's dogs. When we look at bacteria, no matter what we do, they stay bugs. They don't change in their fundamental nature. There seems to be some sort of an inherent species limitation, and we have no good explanation for this in terms of Darwinian theory. We should have far more flexibility, far more plasticity under laboratory conditions than we actually do if Darwinian theory or anything like that were correct. What we see in nature, what we see in the laboratory, is very highly bounded variation, cyclic variation. That's, for example, bin, um, uh, finch beaks in the Galap uh, Galapagos Island. That's about all we see. Small variations. Why is that, if Darwinian theory is correct? These are evidentiary points that I think need to be stressed, need to be examined openly, honestly. And they never are, of course. Never are. David Berlinski, that's what I was trying to think of his last name. 
So there you have a scientist that's saying what I just said to you, and he's saying these things should be talked about, but they aren't because it's easier to just promote evolution as though it's true without being challenged. So number four, we'll try to cover one more here tonight, and then we'll finish the last two next week and then get into the evidences of a creator. Number four, the theory of evolution contradicts the fossil record. If evolution had occurred as it's being taught over the last billions of years, there should be millions and millions of transitional fossils. Not just once in a while a big to-do about a new one and then within 10 years or so it usually fades away because they realize it wasn't what they promoted it to be at the beginning. There should be millions of them. They should be everywhere. But that's not what we find. Darwin himself acknowledged this Back in his day, he said, why then is not every geological formation and every stratum full of such intermediate links? Geology assuredly does not reveal any such finely graduated organic chain. And this perhaps is the most obvious and serious objection which can be urged against the theory. The explanation lies, as I believe, in the extreme imperfection of the geological record. So basically he says there, there's a real problem with my theory as the what we find of fossils so far. It's not proving my theory to be true. The problem, though, is we just haven't found enough fossils yet, the imperfection of the geological record. Once we find more fossils, it'll confirm the theory, I believe, is what he was saying. So we fast forward 120 years. Dr. David Raup says, well, we are now 120 years after Darwin, and the knowledge of the fossil record has been greatly expanded. The record of evolution is still surprisingly jerky, and ironically, we have even fewer examples of evolutionary transition than we had in Darwin's time. Darwin really had none, but some of the classic cases of our Darwinian change in the fossil record have had to be discarded or modified as a result of more detailed information. Dr. Stephen Jay Gould of Harvard University said, the absence of fossil evidence for intermediary stages between major transitions in organic design, indeed our inability even in our imagination to construct functional intermediates in many cases has been a persistent and nagging problem for gradualistic accounts of evolution. He also said all paleontologists know that the fossil record contains precious little in the way of intermediate forms. Transitions between major groups are characteristically abrupt. Dr. Colin Patterson had written a, a, a book, and he, he got a letter, somebody saying, why didn't you include examples uh, of, of intermediate fossil forms? And he, he responded this way, I fully agree with your comments on the lack of direct illustration of evolutionary transitions in my book. If I knew of any, fossil or living, I would have certainly have included them. Yet Gould and the American Museum people are hard to contradict when they say there are no transitional forms. I will sit, lay it on the line. There is not one such fossil for which one could make a watertight argument. This article is from this year. New research, and here's a couple things it says. And yet another unexpected finding from the study, species have very clear genetic boundaries and there's nothing much in between. The absence 
of in-between species is something that also perplexed Darwin, he said. And then they go on to say this, in analyzing the barcodes, this is the DNA barcodes, across 100,000 species, the researchers found a telltale sign showing that almost all the animals emerged at about the same time as humans. That's research from this year. You see, the fossil record doesn't show a gradual changing. So then we, we might uh, uh, close this section by this. What about stuff in the museums? Man, if you went to the museum, you would think, it's there, man. They've got it put together. For instance, they've got dinosaurs with feathers. So, Pastor Rick, how do you explain that? I mean, that clearly looks like a transitional form from a dinosaur to a bird. Dinosaurs with feathers. Well, in this picture, by the way, on the, the left is what they found. On the right is what you see in the museum. Notice any difference? Second thing about this is this fossil on the left, uh, Archaeoraptor, was proven in 1999 to be a fraud by Dr. Timothy Rowe of Texas University, and yet it was even after he told them that it had been manipulated, he found evidence through a CAT scan that they had glued it together. It was different pieces of different types of fossils glued together to try to make it look like that. They still published it in the National Geographic to illustrate feathers on dinosaurs. So feathered dinosaurs, many museums suggest yes, no feathers have been found with any dinosaur fossils. And Dr. Storrs Olson of the Smithsonian Institute wrote a letter to National Geographic Society saying that this, this thing of putting these feathered dinosaurs in, in museums, he says it's propaganda, hype, wishful thinking, melodramatic, nonsense, spurious, fan, fantasia, and a hoax. And yet they're found in museums. And here's another example, Archaeopteryx. So on the left is what they found. On the right is what kids see in the museums and in the textbooks sometimes. Fossils don't confirm evolution. So we've looked at four things tonight. Evolution contradicts the second law of thermodynamics that says things naturally go from order to chaos. They fall apart. The amount of usable energy decreases. That's a scientific law. Evolution says, no, no, it was extremely chaotic, and on its own, it's ordered to where now we have this universe that's finely tuned and perfectly ordered. Secondly, evolution contradicts the law of biogenesis that says life only comes from life. That's what science observes over and over again. But evolution holds to the thought that somehow, because things were different back then, that there once was no living cells, no living proteins, the building blocks of life weren't even here on the earth, and through lightning strikes in the primordial soup, it just, they got together and life started. And then here we are, through random mutations, accidents that were chosen by natural selection. Doesn't, it's not true science, you see. Number three, they purposely confuse microevolution, adaptation with it a kind, which is biblical, 
and scientifically sound. Things do adapt, but there's boundaries. One kind does not turn into another, and that's never been observed. But they use microevolution to teach evolution and say, because this is true, this must be true. And it's a huge leap in logic. And then number four, the fossil record does not have millions and millions and abundance of transitional forms. They're actually, um, oh, I got to show you one more thing about that. Here's an example, one of the examples. Now, they're not all this bad. This one's really bad, but they're bad. <laughs> They've tried to come up with the missing links between apes and humans. You, once in a while, you'll hear about this. You know, oh, we found this. Lucy was the biggest one, you know, I think that came along. Well, here was one of those. They found that tooth, and they named it Nebraska Man. And this is what people saw in the museums. They found the tooth, and they said that's what he looked like. After further research, eventually they found out that tooth came from an extinct pig. It wasn't a human being at all, or anything to do with a link between apes and humans. You can go Piltdown Man, where a guy purposely, a purposeful fraud, where he took part of an ape skull and part of a human skull and manipulated them and, and glued them together. That was around for quite a while before they finally acknowledged it was a fraud. And there's been numerous, even Lucy has now been proven to be an extinct form of ape. It wasn't anything to do with ape and human. So we see that the fossil record does not confirm evolution. So next week we'll look at the last two. Mutations do not give you an engine for evolution because it's not an adding of genetic information. And then evolution violates the order, beauty, and design we see everywhere in the universe. And that leads us into the good stuff of the stuff we do observe that confirms creation everywhere around us. We see it. Let's pray. Father, help us to see. It's in one sense a shame that we even have to study these kinds of things. But it's the truth that we live in a culture that wants to promote a lie. A lie that denies you the honor that you deserve as our creator. A lie that gives credit for the miraculous to a process rather than a person. We thank you, Father. We pause at the end of this to say we know you created us and we're grateful and thankful that there's so much evidence that confirms you created us. We're fearfully and wonderfully made. God, I pray, help every one of us here in this room tonight to begin to, to be better equipped to talk to people and especially within our own families to help dispel the lies and the propaganda that's so prevalent in our culture today. So Holy Spirit, take what we've, this time we've spent tonight and use it for your glory and ingrain it upon our hearts and minds, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Uh, thank you. God bless you.